Yes, hi everybody. This is Dr. Simon. Blog Talk Radio. Hello everybody. This is Dr. Simon. My show, as always, are the stories we live by. And I wanted to talk today about living with stories that don't contain God. Or don't contain, at least for me, any form of supernatural um, uh, beings or supernatural powers. So therefore, there are no miracles. There is no uh, ultimate authority. It's just us chickens who try to figure out uh, and do and create the world we're going to live in. There are no um, ultimate mysteries. To not know something doesn't mean it remains shrouded in mystery. It becomes theory. It becomes a set of ideas that uh, you either accept on faith or you just live with not knowing. Uh, I was planning this show for a while, and then last Sunday, January 6th, in the Sunday Times, in their review section, there was a wonderful article entitled The Blessings of Atheism by a Susan Jacoby, who is the author of a forthcoming book, The Great Agnostic Robert Ingersoll and American Free Thought. And the headline below about atheism, it is here and it is now. And uh, Mr. Jacoby points out a statistic that perhaps 20% of Americans at this point uh, are atheists, don't believe in a god. Now, that doesn't mean they don't believe in a religion. Um, I, I, <laughs> I'm, I'm aware that there are many uh, religions around that uh, don't contain God. In fact, they're hostile to God. Uh, psychiatry, as I've said, is a religion. And uh, psychoanalysis, when I was a young student, became my religion. That is a set of beliefs that were unquestioned and involved a social organization around a leader such as Freud or one of Freud's disciples or the early heroes of psychoanalysis. Um, in any event, uh, this is really not so much against religion. I'm not against anybody involved in a religion. Um, but I started to do these shows and added this one because I've been doing a series in the last few weeks that have been more better received than any of the shows I've done before on uh, American democracy in its demise. And I believe we are now at a crossroads in that, in that demise. I'm going to do another show on this next week. But the party of God, that is, those who now own the Republican Party and take on all the air of individuals who are ideologically convinced of their complete and ultimate truth about all things, seem willing to allow uh, America to go into default on its debt if they don't get their way. And I'm going to discuss the psychology of that in my next show. But this kind of authoritarianism, this kind of we know best and we don't have to talk about it, if we don't get our way, we will punish. Um, it's the same as parents I've worked with all over the years who have said to their children, I'd rather see you dead 
than uh, marry out of the religion, or I'd rather see you dead than go into a profession or go someplace that we, as your parents, or I, as your father, or my mother, or your mother, don't want you to go. This kind of uh, politicking is now tearing the country apart. And it's not that it doesn't exist on the left, uh, rigid ideological positions, and hence religions with or without God. It's just that this kind of politics says we're willing to do whatever damage is necessary to get our way. And um, I don't know how this will play out, uh, but it seems to me that giving up uh, or living without the idea uh, that there is an ultimate authority that can inform you as to ultimate truth, that there is a perfect being or something perfect that endows you as the believer with that perfection or a search for above human perfection is more dangerous or as dangerous as any kind of authoritarianism and it is the kind of authoritarianism and totalitarianism that really threatens I think to uh, do damage to this country continue to do damage to this country uh, that, that, that could end the democracy that we have such as it is now my uh, Jacoby goes through an interesting uh, reason for her atheism that had to do with a child who was ill, who later died, um, and, and a questioning of faith even as a child. Uh, my, my own uh, rejection of ultimate authority and the idea of God uh, came when I was about seven or eight years old in Hebrew school, and on Thursday, which was the last day of the week, uh, for our lessons, uh, we were told Bible stories. And I adored those Bible stories. The story of Moses uh, leading the children of Israel uh, out of Egypt, out of bondage, uh, Jonah and the whale, uh, all kinds of wonderful stories that at the time uh, I kind of took literally because when you're seven or eight, you do think literally, and that the stories were presented as literal truth. And one day... I, it dawned on me to ask my rabbi, my teacher, uh, how come God doesn't speak to anybody today? I later learned as a psychologist that if you pray, you're religious, but if God actually answers you, you're schizophrenic <laughs> and seriously mentally ill. How come God doesn't talk to us today? And my teacher became extremely agitated and very angry at the question, and I have learned that one of the self-protecting mechanisms in most God-based religions uh, is don't ask the question. Don't even know that you have the question to ask. Um, Jacoby talks about that in her article. Uh, there's a number of, of, of uh, wonderful books that I'll mention along the way of people who, uh, Daniel Dennett, for example, who says most people don't know how they're sworn to silence even to themselves, not to ask a question about what is the basis of your belief in God. Where does it come from? How do you question uh, this notion? And it seemed to me at that moment as an eight-year-old, uh, it wasn't very well formulated, that there was something here that I needed to struggle with uh, 
And ultimately, it seems simple to me. All of the fairy tales of my youth, all of the interesting good stories, turned out not to be true if I thought about them as not literally true, but as having a message, as being figuratively true. Uh, I don't have to believe that Icarus literally put on wings and flew up to the sun. I don't have to believe that Zeus was on a mountain uh, and there was a struggle between humans and the gods. Literally, to see the message and the meaning in these allegories and stories and metaphors. So for me, at a very young age, the idea that would, there was an ultimate authority fell apart. Then I got involved in science. And as I've said a number of times on my show, science is more an attitude than a series of given methods that arrive at ultimate truth. Because at the moment you believe that, science ceases to be science, and science becomes a religion. Uh, an anti-God religion in many cases, but a religion nonetheless. To me, science operates with certain principles, if held on to, add an enormous responsibility to your, uh, the way you live. And the responsibility involves the following. One is that in science, something is acceptable as a fact until it's disproven. And when we explain things, unless there's continued evidence to support the contention, the theoretical idea, it has to be given up. You can't say this is the truth and hold on to it regardless of the facts that are demonstrated to show that it's not a true belief. So you have to live in science with tremendous amount of doubt, which among other things is a big responsibility. We don't want doubt. I'll talk about that in a moment. So one thing involves in, that's involved in science is the belief that there are no miracles, there is no ultimate authority, there are no magical forces. You have to give up childhood magic, which is a painful and scary thing to do. Right? You can do I can do hours on the psychology of living without magic. And I could have to admit, I slip into magic uh, as much as anybody else, but as I get older and older, as I'm doing it, a voice in my head says to me, uh-uh. It's not going to work. It's not going to sustain. So uh, you have to give up the idea of miracles. A wonderful cartoon I saw some years ago. I forget the book in which it was in. It may be The End of Faith by Sam Harris, but I'm not sure, of a scientist and another scientist who's just walked into the room. And the second scientist is looking at the work on the board. And there's a hole on the left side of the board, an enormous an uh, impressive list of, of uh, facts and equations. And on the right side, another impressive list, and in between are the words, and then a miracle occurs. And the second scientist looks and says, nah, I think you're going to have to fill in the details. Now, the details can't involve a miracle. So this, the, the basis of science is a questioning. Doubt has to be part of it. You can't apply to supernatural forces of any kind. And ultimately, your theory is going to be disproven. There are no facts. Uh, whenever I listen to this, the, the sad discussion on whether creation is, creation is science should be um, 
a part of the scientific curriculum. And people who are no better give in to the politics of this. And, and we have a further eroding of good science or the basic scientific attitude. Um, I want to scream because the creationists don't have a testable hypothesis that can be disproven by fact. It starts with the faith in a creator, an ultimate creator, and it works from there. So everything has to go back to the ultimate creator, what Daniel Dennett is calls a skyhook, something that, that all the facts hang on to that's not attached to anything above it except some kind of mythical force that can't be tested. Darwin's theory of evolution, he says, is like universal acid because the more facts that are thrown against it and the more ideas that attack it, the stronger it becomes. The fact is, we don't call Darwin's theory Darwin's truth. It's a theory. And it's always being modified, sometimes around the edges, uh, and someday we don't know. Some other new force of explanation may push us to reject or to so modify Darwin's idea that it's no longer Darwin's, but, uh, you know, uh, theorist X or theorist Y, and a new set of ideas. <clears throat> nothing in science remains in concrete. There are nothing, nothing uh, a set of rules uh, that can't be questioned. And that's something I love about science. Not that it produces ultimate truth. Or that if you're a scientist, you should look down your nose at people who are not trained in science and say, I have the answers because I'm in a scientist. Well, that's the kind of authority that's used by politicians and people in religion to say, you have no basis to question the existence of why, you know, that's by the way my, my, what my rabbi did say to me. I left that part out. He said to me, you don't have a basis to ask that question. Who are you to ask that question? And it was not my question that was wrong. I have learned over the years there are no bad questions. Uh, but just it, teachers who have a responsibility to answer the question and ultimately the responsibility to say, I don't have the answer. Let's look it up. What do you think? Uh, there is no what do you think in, in discussions about the existence of ultimate authority and those who speak for ultimate authority. It just doesn't happen. So, a couple of ideas as we go along. I'm not sure how well organized this is going to be. I think we're doing all right. Um, I want to talk about kind of, kind of if you do come out, if you are an atheist, and I've always had the suspicion uh, that uh, Susan Jacoby is wrong. It's not 20%, much, much higher. It's much higher. There are an enormous number of people who profess to believe in God and then ignore the idea. I once had discussion with some people who suggest that um, they hold on to the idea that God may exist because if God does exist, they'll be punished if they openly state that God doesn't exist. Talk about a gambit. Talk about you know, trying to cover your tracks. When in fact, what they are saying is that they don't believe. But they're afraid of taking the full adult responsibility for what their conscience and their intelligence tells them is true. 
Um, I know, and I believe, I believe this to be true down to the bottom of my toes, that when you say you don't believe in God or you believe in a religion different than somebody else and they begin to scream at you and yell at you, they are frightened. I've said this a number of times. I believe it is a a basic uh, psychological truth that we have fight and flight responses. And when we're frightened, we either run or we stand and fight. And anger is the emotion that motivates us to fight. When anybody yells at me for my beliefs, or in turn, I yell at somebody for their beliefs, I know that somehow they are talking to me in something I believe is possibly true. And it has aroused doubts. And to give up a story that you have been raised with since childhood, without question, without the ability to question, and built your life around that story in, in so many ways, to give up that kind of, of faith, which I'll talk about, because I don't think it's good faith. Um, and I'll talk about Dostoevsky in a couple of minutes because he figures very big in my thinking about this. And I was going to do a show on an article about Dostoevsky that was again in the New York Times sometime a couple of months ago, about a month ago. Um, it's a very scary thing to do. When whole groups of people are willing to kill other people for their faith, I don't think they have faith. I think what they are demonstrating is they are simply terrified and thereby enraged and filled with hatred for somebody who has raised issues that question the very basis of their sanity, the very basis of how they see the world. And that they're tortured. Oh yes, they can do damage, and they can torture other people, and do, but they are tortured souls. They have been cut off from large sections of their own intelligent mind from the things they would directly experience if only they were to open up their eyes and look around them, if only they were to try to answer the questions on their own rather than repeating catechism such as what is the basis of my life, why am I here, what is goodness, what is evil, not what I've been told not what I slavishly repeat over and over again. Fearful of the punishment that could be meted out to me, because this is how uh, authoritarian systems work. If you disbelieve, you will be punished. You can be ostracized. You can be killed. Right? Not because of that, but because their, their own mind always is trying to reach out and, and, and gather information and, and question, because I think that's how we're built. So I think that there are huge numbers of people who are big doubters about what they have been force-fed, what they have been told to believe, and then told implicitly, do not ever, ever question this belief. Don't question authority. Obedience is the object of your training. Obedience 
to authority defines goodness. And again, I, I've said this many times, I'll say it again, we need authority, but not an authority that demands total obedience and mindlessness to repeat over and over again in rote a truth that you then live by without even being aware that you yourself question that. Right. So that I think that there are huge numbers of people. In fact, I have gone through periods in my life where I question whether anybody really believes in God. Now, I know that's not true. I do meet people who have real faith. And when I state what I believe, as it comes up in discussion, this was with patients, with students over the years, those with real belief do not play games with me. They simply say, that's what you believe, but I believe otherwise. There is no anger. There is no desire to hurt or to quash uh, what I or anybody else says that questions the basis of their religion or questions the basis of their belief in God or, or gods or theory. None. Um, over the years, I've discovered that you, if you're going to talk about this, you have to have a, an understanding of the gambits that will be used against you. Uh, for example, I once had a uh, student who lasted one day in my class. Uh, she was either a nun or an ex-nun. I think she was still active, but she was not wearing habit anymore. And when it came up, somebody asked me, do I actually believe in God? And I said, no. Uh, uh, well, I actually don't say that. I say, what do you mean by God? Uh, Daniel Bennett, in his book, Breaking the Spell, a wonderful little book, not the easiest thing to read, but a wonderful little book, uh, talks about uh, <laughs> this, this uh, question, And you, if you ask people, what do you mean by God? What do you mean? And most people, he say, end up with God is God, and therefore God is a three-letter word. They, they can't or won't get beyond it because they have been carefully taught not to question the basis that there is a God. What do you mean by it? And so the student fumfed and, and said, I, I really don't know, a force in the universe. Uh, she was trying to avoid a, a very, uh, to me, simplistic that God is a man in a place called heaven and that, uh, <clears throat> you know, uh, God speaks to people, and he has a big book in which your life and death are recorded. And uh, uh, like Santa Claus, he knows when you've been good, he knows when you've been bad, uh, and there'll be a scale of justice, uh, and, and that when you die, if there's more on the negative, you'll go to hell or purgatory, uh, as the Catholics believe. Uh, if you're good, you go to heaven, and there, uh, for all eternity, you can play on perfect golf courses, uh, and, and just have a fine old time. Um, she then said to me, this, this woman, what was done to you? What horrible thing happened to you as a child that you don't believe in God? This raises some interesting issues for me because the fact of the matter is if you don't believe in God, you have nothing to prove. You don't prove a negative. You see, if I don't believe the moon is made of green cheese, I don't have to go about trying to prove the moon is not made of green cheese. If you believe that the moon is made of green cheese, you have to provide facts. 
and proof that the moon is made of green cheese. So those who don't believe in a God don't have to prove there's no God. There's nothing to do about it. But she then, the basis of the, all the discussions, and Susan Jacoby in this article raises it, is that we start with the assumption there is a God and that the burden of proof is on those who don't believe in God. In other words, there can't be a questioning of whether God exists. God exists because we say God exists. How this closes off discussion. And so one of the gambits is something must have been done bad. But I've been around for a while, and my response to her was, well, if you want to play that game, let me ask you, what terrible thing was done to you as a child that you believe in God? She got up and walked out of the room, never came back, dropped the course right then and there. Now, I don't believe I was insulting, but to her, of course I was insulting. But she was so shocked by my response, because when I watch these discussions, and from time to time you do see them, the person who is now, well, nothing bad happened to me as a child, that the minute you start to justify the position that you don't believe in God, you're finished. Because what you're agreeing is that the individual who does believe in God or says they believe in God now has the upper hand. They're the ones now in control of the discussion. Okay? They don't have any burden of proof. You have to now demonstrate or provide good reasons why you don't believe. And the fact is, you don't believe if you don't believe because you don't believe. To me, it doesn't make sense. And as I grow older and become more and more concerned uh, that I agree with Winston Churchill, that democracy is not a good way for people to organize their lives, that to live in a democracy is, is not a great thing. It's just better than all the alternatives. I believe that science is wonderful. I believe the arts are wonderful. I believe these things, and I'll get to why in a moment or a little bit. Because when we ask what makes a meaningful life, to me, the meaningful life is not to be lived in an organization that says you believe and you don't question. To me, real meaning comes from other sources. Now, I want to talk a little bit about uh, the book, The Brothers Karamazov, uh, which is listed by most experts, and having read it, I agree. Uh, I think everybody should read the great Russian literature, and and this is one of the best. Um, Is really uh, Dostoevsky's struggle in a book to come to grips with God and religion. And there was a story within the story, a wonderful story within a story, to make a point and raise some wonderful concerns for all of us who are struggling with these issues uh, and, and some of the issues I've already laid out in the first part of the show. It's called The Grand Inquisitor. And it takes place in the, uh, let's say the 1700s, the 1600s, when uh, on a day when a hundred heretics are to be burned in a public square. By the way, it's interesting. If you, um, if you uh, 
gave in and said you did you were a witch that you were guilty of heresy you were possessed by evil you were not spared but you were strangled to death uh, rather than burned uh, and and what's interesting is that when as a psychologist i discovered that much of the uh testing equipment the raw shock and the and the uh uh TAT, the thematic eye perception test, our diagnostic instruments were very much uh, predicated on how the Inquisition really worked. The Inquisition tried to have uh, proof that you were really possessed, that you had the mark of Cain, that you were evil. And they did this by a variety of tests, such as uh, you would be weighted down with stones and thrown into a deep well of water. If you floated, it meant you were a witch. If you drowned, you were innocent. Okay. Uh, the burning to death was such a test. If you didn't catch fire and you didn't burn, it proved you were a witch. And most of the people who were put to death were women. For those of us uh, who, who are feministly inclined, uh, I had a wonderful friend, I think I mentioned this in an earlier show, uh, who was an ex-nun and now a, a professor with me in the city university. And uh, she said that um, Jesus uh, said, call no man on this earth your father. Uh, he was referring to the idea that only God could be formally your father, other than your biological father, of course. And immediately a group of men, all men, formed a church and their title became father. Uh, but anyway, on this day, a hundred people ought to be uh, tortured uh, to prove them uh, and send them to heaven uh, guiltless and uh, free of evil possession when Jesus appears in the square. And as Jesus walks around, he's recognized almost immediately. And the crowd begins to uh, badger him and ask him to demonstrate and prove that he is in fact Jesus uh, can he walk on water? And he does. He walks on a fountain, and he produces some loaves of bread where there were none. In other words, he produces miracles. And the crowd looks at the miracles, and now they're all excited. At which point, up on the balustrade of the church, the Grand Inquisitor, the individual who has to root out evil and who uh, directs the slaughter uh, the auto da fe of these uh, hapless individuals who have been uh, accused of witchcraft uh, and other forms of, of uh, evil doings, uh, looks and orders Jesus' arrest. And the soldiers come and they arrest Jesus and they take him to a basement. And now occurs one of the great discussions in all of literature because Jesus never speaks. The Grand Inquisitor now uh, begins to berate uh, uh, Jesus and tell him that we're going to burn you all over again. We're going to crucify you and kill you all over again. And the crowd out there will do nothing. They'll start waiting for your return again. But if you do return again, the same thing is going to happen to you and it'll happen over and over. And the reason is they really don't want you. They want us. And see, the first thing they ask you for are miracles. And then they ask you 
for uh, to demonstrate mystery to them. Not that they understand it, but that you understand it and they can't understand it. And finally, they want ultimate authority to tell them what to do, to be obedient so that they avoid real responsibility, the terrible burden of living their own lives in the face of all of the terrible things that can happen to us in our lives. They want to escape from responsibility. And what you offer them is love and responsibility. And so we're going to kill you. We're going to do you in a second time. I'm not saying this as elegantly as Dostoevsky. And that'll be it. And this goes on and on, and Jesus never answers him. He smiles, he looks at the Grand Inquisitor, but he never engages in the discussion. And as the discussion goes on, where the, the Grand Inquisitor clearly believes he's in the moral right, because he's removing this terrible responsibility of self-government from people. He is removing, uh, in my terms, the burden of creating meaning where there is none. That's the thought that scares me, or scared me at one time, the most. That we're born and there's a purpose in life. I don't think there's a purpose in life at all. I think that's what the Grand Inquisitor is recognizing without daring to put it into words. The idea of God creates an ultimate truth, but an ultimate purpose. And so we have to struggle to find that purpose. But it's there. I don't believe it's there. I believe, like some of the French existentialists, uh, Camus, Sartre, that we are here, that we are an evolved biological species, and that we are intelligent and see the fact that we're going to die and it terrifies us that we will not have permanent existence, that we are flawed, helpless, biological creatures, and that getting up in the morning and living your life in the face of that truth is terrifying. I believe that one of the reasons, again, to go around in a circle, that we throw ourselves into religion, that we become part of a, of a mob, if you will, that we seek out ultimate authority, is to not face the possible truth that we have to create our own meaning. And I'll talk at the end of this discussion with some of the things that I have found that give my life meaning in the face of the fact that I don't believe there's any ultimate purpose or ultimate meaning. The universe doesn't know I'm here, doesn't know my name, won't reward or won't punish me. Um, how do you live in the face of that? And it's by taking a responsibility to find meaning and to create something that's meaningful. At which point the Grand Inquisitor, becoming exhausted, uh, doesn't know what quite to do in the face of uh, Jesus' silence and his enigmatic appearance. And at which point Jesus kisses him on the mouth, kisses the Grand Inquisitor to say, I forgive you in effect, 
and uh, I hold no malice towards you. And in this, in this act of love, in this act of selflessness and of faith, he can't hold up. And he says, get him out of here. Throw him out of here. Throw him into the forest. Get him all the way away from here. We'll go about our business, but I don't want him here. And so ends one of the really great stories in literature, raising these very profound issues. Do we have faith in ultimate authority? Or do we have the kind of faith that says, I believe this is how I have to live. This is how my conscience tells me is the right way to live. Science can't produce that for us. Whatever facts and whatever explanation science can't, comes up with, you will never get from science except when science plays religion as it does in so-called pseudo-psychiatric science, which says this is the right way to live. Otherwise, we make a diagnosis of, of, of uh, you know, that you're, you have mental disorder, mental illness, and we're going to treat you for your false beliefs. Much of psychiatry and mental health operates like the Inquisition. Well, the punishments are less severe, uh, but, but ultimately, the true believer uh, is, is the one who gets the least degree of punishment by the mental health industry and the mental health machine. So here we are. Here we are. Uh, to accept atheism is to find, is demand that I have to find a meaningful way to live. And I have to do it. I have to, I have clues along the way. Um, but it's a burden. And all kinds of authority will love to lift that burden from you and uh, <laughs> will not make it kind if you, if you uh, question, if you stand on your feet and question. And we're seeing a political erosion now uh, where the true believers, uh, this is how it is and this is how it works, and uh, we will damage you and the country will damage anything that's necessary uh, to bring our truth, whether or not there are facts to support it, but this is our received truth. And it scares me. Now, <clears throat> I have 20 minutes. Nobody's called in. Uh, I get disappointed in that. I think these shows are rather interesting. And uh, the archive, I get tremendous response on the archives. But uh, again, I don't know how long people are listening or whether they're taking little pieces of this, but certainly nothing, I've never had this kind of response before, and it motivates me to continue doing it, although I really wish I could engage uh, an audience and get some kind of feedback uh, as to what I am saying. But again, this is going to be personal. <clears throat> what to me represents a good life? And notice I don't say what to me is mental health. If mental illness is unwanted behavior, then mental health is wanted behavior. And then the question is, who wants it? <clears throat> who wants us to behave in the way that's called healthy? <clears throat> Interesting. Let me start with some aspects of what I think makes life meaningful. One is honest, loving relationships. You can't have too many of them. You can have uh, some close numbers of friends. 
for most of us, the signpost, the, the, the hint of this is that we're born into families. And if we're lucky, it's a family that respects our opinion, that gives us guidance, that does do discipline, uh, but doesn't negate the individuality of our own identities. And that is something, again, I've done shows on this before, and in the near future I'll do it again. Every one of us has to be part of the social structure. We have to be part. Uh, I, I just recently uh, had an interview with a woman who uh, is facing a serious cancer and uh, may well die from it. She has no family, nobody. And what terrifies her is that she has to face this terribly difficult cancer treatment and nobody cares. Uh, nobody cares. Oh, guest 18649 has logged in. Good. Um, if you want to call 646-716-7756, that would be okay. Anyway, nobody's there. She is alone in the world. And she says, what terrifies me as much as, as, as the treatment and the thought of my death and my dying is that I'm all alone. Nobody cares. There's nobody to comfort me. There's nobody I could turn to. And that, that shot an arrow right through my heart. Uh, and I held her hand for a while, and she asked me would I come back. And I said, well, if after the treatment you come back to this particular uh, rehab unit, it would be my pleasure and my delight. And, and one of the reasons I find meaning in my work is that I can involve myself with people on that honest level. There's something about the fact that when people are old and facing death, either they become very foolish uh, and silly uh, and crazy, and that's not because they believe in religion. I mean, some of the people I, I'm envious of are people who have a kind of quiet faith and that uh, I wish I had it uh, when I'm very ill or when I'm facing uh, crises, but I can't. It's too late. I can't comfort myself what I believe to be uh, a figment of imagination, however creative it is. Uh, but these people, they're stripped away of all the defenses, all the bullshit that you know exists uh, on a social level when people are playing games. Can you top this? Uh, or do you have this toy? Uh, or, you know... I, 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 I haven't prepared myself to give a good list of these kinds of, of things, but you know when they exist. Uh, when you have a conversation I've had over the years where you're bragging about how your child is doing so great. Oh, you think your child is doing so great. Well, my child is even doing this and this and this. And you realize you're caught up in a discussion that's absolutely meaningless. It doesn't go anywhere. It engenders anger. It engenders uh, a shutdown of any kind of real communication. So um, uh, one of the things that, that produces meaning in my life is my family and, 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 and my ability to be involved uh, with people I really love. Uh, I was kind of lucky. I met a woman, uh, and this June I'll be married for 50 years. And uh, it's something that uh, has given my life great purpose and great meaning. So that's a big piece of it.
But let me raise an interesting point, or for me it's interesting. Let me go to the Bible. Oh, you'll say, why would you do that? Well, again, I think the Bible, uh, as a book of stories, and I used to love them as a child, and um, I now see them as not only interesting stories, but as having great meaning. The book of Genesis has always fascinated me. And what is the book of Genesis about? It's about God's creation of everything. There was nothing, and God didn't like nothing, although that raises all kinds of interesting questions. If there was nothing, where did God come from? How did God create himself out of nothing? Um, there's a book by a fellow named Holt. And you know what? I'm sitting here now, and the title eludes me. Uh, but on the, I'll, I'll try to find it and go on. It's a bestseller, as a matter of fact. And he goes through this whole business. Why is there something? Can there be truly nothing? Um, and and, and gets get caught up in all of the religious ideas that if, in fact, there was once nothing, uh, who, what was the something that created God? Or can God have created himself out of nothing? Raises all kinds of wonderful questions that make your head spin after a while. Uh, and that gives purpose to me. It does. I love intellectual ideas. I love to be involved with uh, uh, intellectual puzzles like that. Not actual puzzles, but intellectual conundrums. Uh, I, I know I was, as a kid, we were looking in a group of us in camp, or looking into the stars, and we all started to have our heads spin when somebody said, how far does the universe go? Is it infinite? Does it go on forever? And what does that mean, forever? That kind of stuff I find very, very meaningful. But the story of creation is, is a fascinating one. Out of nothing, God creates and over six days, he creates everything. And on the seventh day, even God needed a day off and rested. Okay? He creates, he creates, he creates, he creates, he creates, he creates. And the last thing he creates in this wonderful story is you and me. We're created in God's image. Now, notice, that doesn't mean we should turn around and create an image of God in our image, which is what we really do. I don't really find it exciting to see a picture of Jesus with blonde hair and blue eyes when this individual, if he actually existed, came from Africa or the Asian-African border. Huh? doesn't make sense. So, which is why... The Muslims and the Jews uh, have decided you don't make any image of God, because if you make an image of God, you'll create God out of our image, and we're not capable of being God-like. We're created out of God's image, but not to be God, not to be perfect, not to stand and say, I know all truths about all things, and you, little boy, Shut your mouth and don't ask me why God stopped speaking while the Bible says he spoke and spoke and spoke. If we're created, it seems to me, in God's image, and we ought to be find purpose in our existence because we have to, it seems to me it will be in the act of creativity. To create something that wasn't there before that reflects who we are as individuals, as unique individuals. 
but at the same time to do it in such a way that is somehow beneficial to those who could partake and enjoy of what we created. For me, there's always this balance between being your own self, your own unique individual, and being embedded in a social order that hopefully is made up of individuals who, like yourself, love and respect the individual of each and every individual or person in the social order. This is why democracies so appeal to me and authoritarian, up-down, hierarchical systems don't. In a hierarchical system, those above are innately in their own minds superior and better to those below. And anybody who is disobedient uh, is to be punished or castigated or cast out, uh, to be ostracized. And I don't think life is meaningful in the view of the story of Genesis by being obedient. Respectful, yes, but not blindly obedient to authority. And this is so much of how the world is socially and morally constructed. And this is the basis of so much of my fear that my beautiful country is moving further and further into a hierarchical organization of those who claim they know the truth, God has proclaimed it, and anybody who doesn't like it is evil, a heretic, uh, should be cast out, shouldn't be an American, etc., etc. We've had enough of that, uh, and our struggle uh, is, is to find meaning and purpose, I believe, in everybody's individual act of creativity, not destruction, not, not destruction, but creativity that enhances the lives of those who are in that social system. How's that? I like that. When we see youngsters take guns and go into schools or churches or go into movie theaters and start blowing people away, we are seeing the end result of a society in which despair and hopelessness and rage have replaced love, responsibility, and a sense of individual creativity. And that's one of the reasons why the Newton School Massacre is so devastating to almost everybody except those authoritarians who believe that they know the right answer uh, and, and, and it's not important. Their rights have to be preserved. That the source of destruction, the gun, has to be the supreme symbol of masculinity and power in American society. Because this is what they're saying. Guns don't kill people. People kill people. Yes, but mass murderers can't kill people as well without a submachine gun that fires 100 rounds a minute and sprays them deadly in all directions. Yes, people, but what is the psychological meaning of an individual who goes into a school whose job it is to create individual creative intelligence, people who can live in a democracy, respectful of other people, and blows away children in this way? What kind of rage and what kind of despair 
And again, I, we, my, I, one of the shows I did in the last couple of weeks on, on guns and violence, um, this whole logic uh, that it's the mentally ill who do this and we have to isolate the mentally ill and find out who would do this. No, it can't be done. Uh, it's, it's to find the scapegoat, which is very the, 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 the essence of authoritarian thinking. It's not us. It's the evil other. It's the witch that has to be put to death in the town square. Uh, if we can get rid of the evil, as Hitler tried to get rid of the evil Jews, we will have the perfect society. So, folks, and guest, what is it? One eight six four nine. Is that a name? That's not a name. How do you get a number? Guest one eight six four nine. Who is logged in now for 20 minutes? That's great. Thank you. Thank you. All right. The number, if anybody would like to call in these closing minutes, is 646-716-7756. And if nobody wants to call in, then I'm going to wait quietly for another minute. My neck is hurting me again. I'm having serious neck problems as an old guy. I have... Uh, arthritis in my neck, I have bulging discs, I have grief, and uh, I'm better than I was last week, but I went out and I played a game of creative golf. My golf is very creative. Uh, <laughs> I'd like to follow the rules better, but, but I'm simply not good enough. Uh, but anyway, I played, and now I have uh, more stiffness and, and discomfort, and holding the phone to my head I will pay a price when I wake up in the morning for this. But anyway, uh, I enjoyed talking into the ether. Uh, I enjoyed that somebody listened. And um, that's it. So, as we count down, there are five minutes left. And nobody else is calling. I send my creative baby into the Internet atmosphere out over the wires. I never quite understand where this stuff lives uh, until it's uh, dragged out of the ether and the uh, universe that it's in. The cloud, that I love that concept. I can't grab my, get my mind around it. And somebody downloads all or part of it and listens. So, have a very good evening, everybody. Have a good day. And whatever day you hear this, and this is Dr. Simon. Uh, I have another show next week, and on Wednesday at 8 o'clock, tell your friends. Maybe you'll call in then. Good night. <laughs>